Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast and welcome to our new mini-series on medicine and the law. JP and I are excited to bring you this mini-series. In it, we're going to cover in multiple episodes the many interesting, often confrontational and necessary ways that neurosurgeons and doctors in general relate to lawyers. I think you'll find this mini-series to be exciting, informative, and as usual, just like our coronavirus and Hell Week episodes, this will be released on a weekly basis in conjunction with our regular episodes. Hi, everybody. JP here with the usual disclaimers. The opinions expressed on the Neurosurgery Podcast belong to the people expressing them and don't represent those of any institution or professional organization. Further, the topics discussed on this show do not constitute medical advice nor the practice of medicine. And finally, in particular for our guests of that profession, the subjects discussed on this podcast do not constitute legal advice or the practice of law. But don't hold that against us, folks. Advice isn't free. Now, let's get started. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast, and welcome to our mini-series on medicine and the law. So this is our second real episode. In our first, we had Jim Harrop, who's a neurosurgeon, talking about uh, complications and malpractice. And this will be our first uh, episode with an actual attorney. And uh, Mr. Sparwath, who is uh, our guest today, is uh, our second lawyer on. Our first lawyer was actually Katie Rico, who talked about lobbying and neurosurgery. So let me introduce Steve briefly, if you would. Uh, Steven Sparworth, I got to know through uh, some um, medical legal work that I did. Steve went to Emory University in Atlanta, and he went to Catholic University for law school, which ironically is where Kitty Rico went to school. And Steve is uh, from a very well-known and, uh, and reputable law firm called Owen Gleaton, Egan Jones, and Sweeney in Atlanta. They defend uh, reputable doctors like the folks at Emory University. So Steve, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great, great, great. So, Steve, let's let's start out by uh, the, some of the basics, because um, you know most doctors uh, don't know much about the law. And so, the title of this episode is uh, "So You've Been Served," and uh, what do you do now? So, can you walk us through, like, what does it even mean to be served? Like, what does what does that legal term mean? The the legal term "served" means that you are officially served with a summons and a copy of the lawsuit, and it can be done by a sheriff or a marshal, or some lawyers will hire a special process server, especially if the statute of limitations is running quickly and a normal citizen uh, can show up at your door uh, and hand you the papers. And at that point, um, you are officially served with a lawsuit and, and battle is joined, so to speak. Now, t- tell me that again. So it sounds like Someone serves you, and it could be like someone, like a police officer or someone in uniform? It, it could, and they could show up at your house at 10 o'clock at night or at 1 in the morning. Um, they want to do it at a time when they think that you are going to be home, uh, especially, again, if the statute of limitations is running and the lawyer has let them know that. But, but typically it's done uh, with a sheriff or a marshal. Now, that's really scary. I work for a university, so everything has to go through university council first. So I get an email that they receive something because my office address, I guess, is where things go. But is that done to intimidate or is it just the process of, of how this is done? It, it is the process of how it's done. Typically speaking, again, I represent um, one of the major teaching hospitals here in Atlanta. Typically speaking, um, lawsuits don't come out of the blue. Um, The the way it it works with the legal community here in Atlanta is the plaintiff's lawyer will call us up 
uh, let us know that they're going to be filing a lawsuit. And so rather than a sheriff show up at your house, we'll agree to acknowledge service on your behalf. So instead of them serving you personally, they will mail me a copy of the uh, complaint and the summons. And then once that's done, uh, we have 30 days to file a response or our answer to the complaint. If you're in private practice, um, they may show up at your office. Uh, they may show up at the hospital. But typically speaking, if you're a private um, physician not associated with a teaching hospital, it's your house that they will show up at. Wow. Well, that sounds like a great reason just to have a lawyer, lawyer friend, because I mean, I know a lot of doctors never had a parking ticket. And so in the, in, you know, in, in a time that's inopportune, you have a person with a gun and badge knock on your door. That's got to be intimidating. So, okay. So I imagine that when this happens, a lot of doctors, especially younger ones, if it's their first service, it's really scary. So they probably panic, right? They, they do. And uh, especially for somebody who has just left their fellowship or their residency and, and have left and gone into private practice, they figure, especially if not only the physician, but the clinic that they were with or the university that they were with have been served as well, they might think that, well, obviously, if I'm getting notice of the suit, then the university or the clinic must necessarily have gotten notice. So I don't really need to do anything. And so they shove it in a drawer, which is the worst thing that you can do, because, again, you only have 30 days from the date that you're served to file an answer or you go into what's known as default. And so if you do uh, get served with a summons and complaint um, uh, and you're in private practice, notify your insurance carrier immediately, immediately. And if you have come from uh, an institution like Emory or University of Miami or any of the other uh, teaching facilities, then you should let the risk management department uh, know that immediately. Just don't assume that it's going to be known that you've been served and shoved in a drawer. Uh, that has actually happened before. Right. So, so Steve, let's, uh, let's put ourselves in the position of that young doctor or an older professional who has just received uh, their service there at home. Um, you know, thinking literally in that moment, what would you recommend as the first moves to be? Obviously, call your lawyer. Obviously, contact those other entities that you listed. But is there any information that the individual should gather and have at hand? Is there an order that you would contact people? Or can, can things wait a few days? Or should you be making phone calls in the middle of the night if that's when you're served? What's the what's the little step-by-step? Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't do it in the, in the middle of the night. I, I would wait to the next morning. If it's on a Saturday, again, chances are that nobody is going to be there in the insurance office or the risk management department. So the next business you, you know, day is, is fine um, as long as it's done that quickly. Don't sit on it for a week. Don't sit on it for two weeks. Um, the chances are if you have come from a – you've just left your residency or your fellowship uh, and – uh, the 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 institution that you just left, it, it, where the alleged malpractice occurred, they are going to defend you. They are going to appoint me or someone like me uh, to defend you. So you will not have to hire your own attorney. If you've been if you're in private practice and have been sued, then again you're you have malpractice insurance, and they're the ones that will appoint your attorney to you. So uh, one of the common responses uh, with this is that the 
the service or note note or, or writ of service will indicate who the plaintiff is usually a patient, right? If it's malpractice, we're, we're, by the way, we're specifically talking about malpractice, right? Steve, you could be served for a divorce or anything, right? But we're talking oh, about malpractice correct. here. Correct. So, so we will typically indicate the plaintiff, which could be the, your patient, your former patient or your patient and their loved ones and whatnot. And there's a tendency for the doctor to want to immediately reach out to that person, either out of uh, compassion, anger, curiosity, whatnot, right? That, that's a very common response, right? It is indeed. And, 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 and once somebody has hired an attorney, then you're actually, you're prevented from talking to that, uh, to that patient. You will know exactly who the patient is because in the paperwork that you will be served is a, is a copy of the summons, which is a record of here, I've served you, but then you'll also be served with a complaint. And the complaint will have the patient's name, it will have the, the doctor or doctors that they're suing, the institutions that they're suing. So all of that will be set out. Uh, the allegations of the complaint, you know, what the patient is alleging you did wrong will be set out. Um, and then some states like Georgia actually require an affidavit of an expert witness to accompany the complaint. That was one of the few tort reforms uh, in Georgia that uh, survived constitutionality um, arguments. So in order to file a malpractice action in Georgia, and this is similar in other states, there must actually be an affidavit of an expert that, that practices in the same field as you that says, I've reviewed the records or I've read an affidavit of the patient. And in my opinion, you know, Dr. X breached the standard of care uh, in X, Y, and Z. And that will also be attached to the complaint. Wow. Now, now, Steve, you know, I imagine after you are served, as, as you move into the next phase where you've contacted your attorney and things start getting in motion, I, I imagine this is going to be very time consuming, especially if you're a younger professional, perhaps in a smaller practice where you don't have as much staff or personnel to assist you with administrative things like this. Um, how much leeway is given to a surgeon or any kind of clinician who obviously has uh, duties in regards to patient care? most likely has surgeries booked weeks or months in advance, um, but obviously the courts move at their own pace and the deadlines are deadlines. Is there any kind of leeway for a practicing clinician? Typically speaking, things get very busy at the beginning because that's the investigation of the, of the claim. Um, the, you know, it, depending on the statute of limitations, you could have treated the patient two years ago. And so you might need to go and get the records to, to look at it. So typically, in, in the first days after an attorney is hired um, and, and has been appointed to represent you, they will reach out to you and either through a meeting or uh, typically a meeting, but you know, we'll ask you to get up a synopsis of your care in, in, as, in as much detail as possible. And again, you've got the expert's affidavit or you've got the allegations in the complaint, so you sort of know um, you know, what they're saying that you did wrong. So we will need, uh, in order to defend you, a, a detailed outline of your recollections of the patient, why you did this particular surgery as opposed to another, if that's what the allegation is. Um, if there was a complication that occurred during the procedure, what, what complication occurred and why it occurred. Um, and, and so basically a, a, a detailed description will meet with you. And then after that, um, as far as you're reviewing the records go, th there's a lull um, because, as you say, it, it sort of creeps along slowly. 
um, until the depositions get taken. Typically the patient's deposition and their families are taken first. And then after they're deposed, then the defendants or hospital staff, nurses, whoever may be involved, um, the OR staff, the anesthesiologist, then they're deposed. So there's a rush of activity at the beginning, and then there's sort of a lull as the legal process uh, works itself out. So Steve, you know, it's interesting because I'm, I'm sure that when most lawyers come see the neurosurgeon, it's pretty nerve wracking and anxiety provoking for a lot of obvious reasons. Similarly, I think when neurosurgeons or doctors interact with lawyers, there's the potential on a professional level for it to be anxiety provoking as well. And I'll never forget this case when I was a resident where a patient had a very, very untoward uh, outcome. And, and in some ways, there may have been some. Uh, so, so I have to be careful because we're using legal terms now. And, uh, you know, there was some, some element of, of maybe um, uh, someone who had not done what they should have done. I'm going to avoid the legal terms. Um, and then what happened was that particular individual then got very anxious after sleeping on it and began to redact the medical record. And for those of you who, who, who don't have English uh, as a primary language or didn't grow up in America, what that means is in the days of written records, took a black marker and started to strike out pieces of the notes that that person had already written from days before. Um, give us some advice on this. You approach a case like that. I mean, is that a good idea, bad, di bad idea? What, what do you think that indicates? That is about the worst idea uh, the worst thing that you can do. Um, one of the um, hooks that plaintiff's lawyers use to get juries upset with doctors is changing of records. Um, that is the worst thing that you can do, uh, Mike. Uh, uh, if, if records have to be changed, obviously it should be done at the time and in the proper way, um, uh, you know, contemporaneously with what happens, not two years later and not after you've been sued. Uh, if there's a problem with the record, you know, obviously you let your lawyers know that and say that's not the case, that's not what happened, and then we'll, you know, we'll figure out how best to deal that and how to present that to the jury. But you are under no circumstances um, never to, to redact or change a record uh, after a lawsuit has been filed. So, Steve, if that's the worst thing you could possibly do, I would hope that it's also one of the rarest mistakes that people make in these situations. Um, in that line of thought, if we think about you know, redacting records, we think about being tardy with filing papers or responding to things, we think about reaching out and contacting the patient who is uh, the litigant against you. Are there any other common missteps or errors that you've seen clients make during this period in this process that that you can kind of point out and, and hopefully people will be aware of if they're ever in this scenario? It's, it, it's never a good idea um, to, to blame others. Uh, obviously, when we meet with you, and, and, and it often comes up in a situation where uh, residents or fellows have been participating in the surgery, nobody can recall exactly who did what, who held the retractor, uh, who mm. who was actually um, using the saw or the scalpel. And the, the worst thing that an attending can do or the worst thing that um, uh, one of the senior partners can do is to try to place blame on uh, the resident fellow or their, or their junior partner. That's another thing uh, that juries don't like. That typically won't come about until a deposition is taken place when, when you will get your chance to explain to the plaintiff's lawyer um, what happened. But again, 
um, jurors uh, do not like it when um, one of the senior uh, folks blame the junior folks. And sometimes it happens. Sometimes it's unequivocal that the resident was the one that, you know, cut something that shouldn't have been cut. Um, and, and, and again, we deal with that. But, but don't ever put in writing in a patient's chart afterwards um, trying to place blame on someone else or don't go back two years later and add a new note as opposed to changing it. Don't go back and add anything else. It, it just looks bad. It looks defensive. It looks like you're uh, doing a CYA after you've been um, sued. Again, that's something that we as lawyers uh, handle. Right. And, and that's, uh, you know, of course, why on the medical side of things, we're always constantly advised document, 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 because the record is what the record is five years down the line. But your point about not blaming those beneath you reminds me of something I've, I've often wondered and often discussed with uh, attendings and different residents at various levels and different institutions. But I'm very curious what the actual answer is from the legal side of things and from inside the courtroom. When we are in the operating room, my understanding and what I've always been taught and what I've always believed professionally, morally about what we do is that the attending surgeon is responsible for everything that happens in that room. We're always taught, especially within neurosurgery, of course, the attending is responsible for the actions of the residents, but um, the people I've worked with always take full responsibility for everything. What do the nurses do? What's anesthesia doing? what's somebody doing on the corner in the computer, whatever happens in that room, it's our patient on the table and we own it. In the courtroom, if it is clearly documented that the attending surgeon is not physically responsible for an error or for an adverse event, who is ultimately legally culpable for events in the operating room? And is there a hard and fast rule for these scenarios or does it play out to the jury how it plays out in a given case? There is no, and again, speaking for, for Georgia law, and I think it's fairly consistent um, nationally, there, there is no, quote, captain of the ship, close quote, liability. So mm. if you as the attending or chief surgeon, um, if it's clear that you were not the one that committed the alleged negligent act, then you cannot be liable simply because you were the attending or, or the captain of the ship. And if it can be proven that it was not you, but somebody else that did it, well, then theoretically, the jury will not be able to place blame on you for that. But to your first point, um, JP, is that in the 34 years that I've been representing um, uh, uh, educational facilities, uh, medical schools, and even in private practice, I've never had a situation where an attending has, has blamed the resident or the fellow. It's always... I don't care what anybody did. It's my responsibility. I, I was the one that was there. Um, and and again, that is something, that attitude is something that I think that jurors appreciate. So Steve, you know, it's interesting because I, I've seen some lawsuits. I, I worked in California for a number of years and now in Florida, I saw a, a number of lawsuits in California, especially where they just named like 30 doctors, right? Everybody in the chart was, was named and... You know, tell us a little about why that's done, and is, is it to, to get doctors to turn against each other? Is it because there's more malpractice money involved? You know, you'll see these suits. It's like it's in the teens or more of the number of defendants, right? One of the reasons they do do that, plaintiffs' lawyers do do that, is to try to create conflicts 
within the defense so that there will be finger pointing. Because if, if there's finger pointing between different doctors or surgeons, well, then it makes the plaintiff's um, job a lot easier. Uh, if, if, if the defense is able to, to, to uh, provide a uniformed front, well, then it's incumbent upon the plaintiff to prove negligence as opposed to one doctor pointing the figure at another. Another reason that it's done is because um, that's right before the statute of limitations and the attorney really hasn't had time to sort through and come up with who may be responsible. And so they just shotgun. We call it shotgun. They shotgun everybody in uh, and then figure that we'll weed out who who shouldn't be in um, later on. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's becoming more so now that uh, plaintiff's lawyers are getting smart and they're not actually naming physicians individually. It still happens. It used to happen all the time. Now I would say it happens um, less than 50% of the time because plaintiff's lawyers aren't stupid. Plaintiff's lawyers want to settle cases and they know if they name uh, physicians individually, it makes it a lot harder to settle because of the reporting requirements now to the data banks, um, you know, to the to the government agencies where if settlements occur, uh, physicians have to be reported. So we're not seeing as many physicians being named individually now. Um, it still happens. Um, and, and those are typically the two reasons. One is finger pointing, hopefully. And then two is they just don't know who's who's culpable um, yet. Well, Steve, this is all incredibly helpful. I just want to give a plug for your law firm because you're doing this uh, pro bono, right, for free. Uh, Stephen works for a wonderful uh, law firm that uh, if you're in the state of Georgia and you get in a bind, look them up. It's Owen Gleaton, Egan, Jones, and Sweeney. And uh, Mr. Sparwath is, was kind enough to come on the podcast. I will add that he's going to be on next week as well to discuss the issue of, of what you should do in the setting of a deposition or court testimony. Uh, I've had the opportunity and privilege of working with Steve, and he's a fantastic attorney. Let me also add at the end of this, as we said at the opening of uh, this series, that we are not giving uh, legal advice as we don't give medical advice in our regular podcast. Uh, Mr. Sparworth was kind enough to come on to give us general free advice, which is very broad. Uh, legal advice, as JP says, you have to pay for. So, uh, Steve, thank you again for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Mm-hmm.